Today's sermon passage is Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Ashlyn. Let's pray together as we begin our time this morning. Father, you are above all things. As we gather here to worship our triune God, we recognize that we do not even begin to grasp the fullness of who you are and what you have done. But we thank you for the ways that you have made yourself known to us through your word and through your son. We long to know you more, that we might love you more and serve you well. And we ask that you would graciously reveal yourself and your truth to us as we open your word this morning. And as we continue to pray during the month of Ramadan for the salvation of Muslims around the world, we're reminded there are so many who need you. And we implore you on their behalf that you would do an extraordinary saving work in their lives, that you would bring dead hearts to life and take hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. We pray that you would send forth your people boldly to proclaim the gospel in defiance of any earthly consequence. That we would not shy away from loving those who are hard to love and saying things that are hard to say. And as Bill prayed, we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution for your name's sake, the likes of which we have never imagined. And we cry out for them, how long, O oh Lord, will you stay your hand? Deliver them from their enemies, from those who would seek their harm. But even if your answer is no, please help them. Help us to be faithful. And we do pray for our sister churches gathering in this city and around this world to worship you today. And it reminds us of the day when you will gather people from every tribe and nation and tongue, and we will be your people and you will be our God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We also pray for Redeemer, for all that you are doing and are yet to do here. We look around and we cannot but be astounded at your faithfulness.
You have been, and you are so very, very good to us. Help us to continue to steward your church well, and we ask that you would continue to work such the only response we could have that a watching world could have is surely the Lord has done this. We pray for those who lead and who serve us. We pray for our pastor and his family during their time away. May it be a time of refreshing for them. We pray for those that you are preparing to raise up to lead here. And we pray even now for VBS that is coming next month. We pray for the salvation of every child that will walk through these doors. We pray that you bear fruit in the life of everyone that is involved. And now I pray for the preaching of your word this morning. That the focus would not be on the speaker, but on the greatness of the glory, and the splendor of you. I pray that every single word that I say would be of you, that it would point us to you, and if it is not, that you would shut my mouth. I pray that anyone here who does not know you would be saved. And for those that do, that they would grow in Christ-likeness. And as we look now at the person and the work of your son, Jesus, the one who became lower than the angels, the one who took on the form of a servant, and who became sin on our behalf. Help us to fall down and to worship him aright. And it is in the name of that very Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you this morning. If you have not been with us, we are working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Even if you have been here, but perhaps like me, you struggle sometimes from week to week remembering what we talked about the week before, that's okay. What you should know is that the entire book of Hebrews is built around one idea, that Jesus is greater than anything in the universe, and then it takes apart every ground we would have for trusting in anyone or anything else for our salvation. And throughout the book, the writer is responding to things that the original audience might have been tempted to trust in other than Jesus. If you are here last week, Stephen preached about how Jesus is higher than the angels. So he's saying if you are tempted to trust in the angels, well, Jesus is superior to them. He will go on to say that maybe you're tempted to trust in the keeping of the Mosaic law. And he says, well, Jesus fulfills that law. Or he says, maybe you're trusting in the sacrificial system. And he says, well, Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice. Now this morning, maybe that's not your temptation. Maybe yours is that you're trusting in the fact that you're a basically decent person. You think, well, one day, God will he'll put his thumbs on the scale just a little bit for me, right? That'll be good. My, my worry, my fear, is that we wouldn't come right out and say this, but we start to think of Judgment Day just a little bit like this. We think we're going to stand before God, and he's going to say, you know what? To get into heaven, your life need to earn you one million points. Now make your case. You think, okay, here we go. Think, all right, I didn't murder anybody. God says, well, that's good. That's worth zero points. You're a little disappointed, but you think, okay, not murdering is a low bar. We can, we can scoot up a little bit. Think a little longer. Ah, I've got it. I looked after widows. I adopted orphans. I even rescued puppies. Now that's got to be worth something. God says, those are indeed good things. It's worth zero points. Now you're a little worried. You stop and think for a while, then you smile, and you're like, ah, I know. I gave everything I had to the poor. I went to the ends of the earth to tell people about you. In fact, I was burned at the stake for telling people about who you are, but 
one time, just one time, one little tiny sin. God looks at you sadly. And he says, that is indeed good. It's worth zero points. Now, maybe that sounds a little melodramatic to you this morning, but I hope not because that's the reality we face. Because you see, to paraphrase Pastor Tim Keller, you are worse than you've ever imagined. And you cannot be good enough to find favor with God. But the good news is, you are more loved than you have ever dreamed. And if you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to take this and I want you to drive it in deep because it is the main point of today's sermon. Jesus has done everything to bring you to glory. It is not about who you are and what you have done. It is about who he is and what he has done. Now you may say, great. We're done, right? Can we go? We're all right. No, no, we're not leaving yet. Because you know what? That's true. And if we left it at that, it would be a little bit like telling you, you know what? If you go stand under Niagara Falls, you're going to get wet. True as far as it goes, but kind of lacking in the real experience there. So this morning, I want to spend our time together. I want you to invite you to come stand under the falls with me. Let the beauty of what Jesus has done just wash over you because it's amazing. Now, before we get into this, there are two ways that I see that this sermon could go horribly wrong. By the time we're done, we may have discovered some more ways for it to go wrong, but there are two that I see going into it. One, there's a lot of information here. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks unpacking these verses, but we've got 30 minutes. So I don't have time to give you everything. My hope is to give you a taste and tell you there's a lot more where this came from. Second, not only is there a lot here, but these verses touch on some of the deepest doctrines in all of Christianity, some of the highest truths of the universe. And I wish we could dig them all out but we can't today. But what I've discovered in our time here is that the Lord blessed Redeemer with an unusual number of theology nerds who would be delighted to tell you all these things that we can't get today. So make use of your fellow church members. If you want to go deeper, there are people here who can help you do that. But this morning, I want to focus on what it is that Jesus has done to bring us to glory. And I think we see three clear things here. One, to bring us to glory, Jesus became human. Two, to bring us to glory, Jesus propitiated our sins. And three, to bring us to glory, Jesus suffered temptation. Now, just a heads up, point one is by far my longest because we're going to do most of the text work there, and then we're going to move quickly. So if you're keeping time, it's not going to be two hours. I promise we will get there. So let's look at these things together. Point one, to bring us to glory, Jesus became human. Look back at verse 10 with me. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he opens up with the word for. Let's back up and get a running start. What did he say before this in verse 9? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the writer has set this up and framed this with the idea that Jesus' death was a gracious act of God, and it was. But now he's going to unpack the fullness of what that means for Jesus to have done just that. So what does he say? It says, It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, right out of the gate, this should prompt the question, why, why was that fitting? He just kind of says that. Well, hang on to that question because it matters, and it's in fact what we're going to unpack a lot this morning. But at the moment, 
what is fitting about it is that it is consistent with and tells us something about the nature and character of God. What does it tell us? It tells us that he is a gracious, self-sacrificial God who loves his people and suffers with and for them. And I love that development there, that the creator has become the redeemer. So what does he do? It says, for whom and by whom all things exist. Now don't pass these little phrases by because I told you we're gonna be flying through some big ideas. So right there we get why the universe exists for God. How it got here through God. One sentence, how and why the universe exists. You are getting your money's worth this morning of this sermon, but we gotta keep going. Um, For our purposes, that is important to know because as we look to Jesus, this reminds us that we live in God's universe. That it is he who tells us why we are here, what our purpose is, what we are to be doing. Now, search your heart honestly this morning. Do you chafe against that just a little bit? Is there a part of you that to say, you can't tell me what to do? Because whatever else you think about our political and cultural moment, that's humanity's default position. In fact, you may not know that. That's also the United States government's default position. In 1992, there was a Supreme Court case. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion, and he said this. Listen to this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, if you listen really closely there, what do you hear? I hear the soft, subtle hiss of a serpent saying, did God really say? Because that's where our heart wants to go. But we know that God did really say, because that's what the whole book of Hebrews is, right? That in these days, God has spoken to us through his son. So we would do well to see what he has to say. What does it say that God does? It says he is bringing many sons to glory. So one of his activities in the universe is to bring us to glory, to himself. Now, why do we need that? If you were here last week, that's what Stephen talked about, that we have lost access to glory through our sin and through our rebellion against God, which meant we no longer are what we were created to be. We no longer fill the role he gave us to fill. So what is God doing about that? It says that he made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the founder of our salvation, that's Jesus. But how was he made perfect through suffering? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at. That's that's what these three points are about, is how God did that. But this may cause you to stop and ask, well, did Jesus need to be made perfect? Wasn't he already perfect? Yes. Morally, he was, is, and always has been perfect. What this is talking about is his suffering is what's going to make his work and his obedience perfect for us. And so it's going to be really important that you keep that in mind as we look at these three ways that he's done that. But look back at verses 11 through 13. What does he say? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So it says that God is our one source and we are brothers of Christ. And I love that because this is another one of those enormous truths. We could spend all day today right here. But this reminds us that in Christ, every human barrier that would separate us, everything. Think about what what separated humanity throughout history. Our races, our sex, our nationalities, our income, our jobs, physical boundaries, all these things that have separated us. But it says that in Christ, every human barrier is torn down. And what that means for you and what that means for me is that if if God 
if Jesus can look at you and call you brother, if he can look at you and call you sister, how dare I think that I could treat you as any less? Shame on me. Everything that separates us has been torn down in Christ. Do you see a pattern there? What does it call us? Sons, brothers and sisters, children. There is an intimate family relationship being created for us here in Christ. And he goes on in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So it says he partook of the same things. When it speaks of children sharing in flesh and blood, that just means about us being human. That's being human beings. But then when it says that, it says that when Jesus partook of those same things, it's one of the clearest statements we have that Jesus became truly and fully human, contrary to those in history who claimed otherwise. So you remember at the start, I said, there's a lot of theology nerd territory. Here, here, here we come. Here we go. Because we could stop right here and I could give you a whole long history lecture of all the people in history that have gotten this wrong. Lots of famous heretics that missed on this. You had groups, they were called the Apollinarians that said Jesus had a human body, but a divine mind. You had other groups called the Docetists that believed that Jesus was still God, but that his body and the cross were all kind of an illusion. He just tricked everybody. He's like David Blaine, street magician. Um, we could talk about how in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, they resolved all this. We could do all that. So right now, two things are happening. Some of you, you're so excited. You're like, yes, go full nerd all the way. Let's just all, all, all in here. Others of you, your brains are just grinding to a halt because you're flashing back to your worst days of school and you're thinking, please, Lord, no, I, I can't do this again. I finally got out. There's hope. There's hope, I promise. It is good, and I would commend to you knowing the history of the church, to know how people have wrestled with this. And like I said, we got people here that can do that all day long. Go to them. But this morning, I've got one overriding goal, and that's to help you see why this matters. I want you to know why should you care that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Because it's understandable that you think, ah, it's kind of just dry, dead academic stuff. Does it really matter all that much. It does. Because even today, right now, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And that is very, very good news. Because you see, what that means is when we come to him, when we pray to him, when we approach him, we don't come to a God who cannot understand what life is like. We do not come to a God who is far removed from our day-to-day existence. No, we come to someone who understands how hard this is because he lived this life. He has hurt like we hurt. He has suffered like we suffer. He knows the sting of a loved one's death. He knows the pain of rejection by those he loves. He knows the betrayal of every one of his friends. He even knows what it is like to cry out to God when God seems silent. Any of our 80s or 90s kids remember the Joan Osborne song, What If God Was One of Us? Anybody remember that? Terrible song. Don't go back and listen to it if you haven't. But also an unnecessary song because God is one of us and his name is Jesus. And so what has Jesus, the God-man, done for us? What does it say? It says, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now, Stephen highlighted this last week and he said, um, we love how God used Satan's greatest weapon 
to destroy him, to defeat him. That through Jesus' death, Satan was defeated. But not only did he defeat the devil, what does it say? He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, death is still our enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. And we are delivered from fear of it because you know what? The fear of death does subject us to lifelong slavery because imagine waking up every day and thinking, this life is all there is. When I die, it is done. Oh, how much of our world's time and effort has been wasted trying to get away from that reality? To try to ignore that, that death is our enemy? But what does it say? He helps the offspring of Abraham. That just means that, that he helps us human beings, those who are his. So how does he help us? Well, here's where the writer starts to tie all of this together. He brings all this together to say, why was it fitting that God made Jesus perfect through suffering? How does he do this to help us? Well, look at verse 17, the first part of it. What does it say? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in, service, in the service of God. Now, I know Jamie has talked about a high priest and what that means, but for our purposes this morning, um, we're going to touch on it just lightly because we'll get to it in much more depth in Hebrews 4 and 5 and then later on. But today, you need to know this. The high priest was Israel's representative before God. There was one at a time, and once a year, he would go into the center part of the temple, the innermost part, which was called the Holy of Holies, and he would make sacrifice for his sins and for the people's sins before God. And that's where God's presence dwelt. So he was the one person that stood between God and the people. He was their mediator. He was their intermediary. That was his job. And now it says Jesus has become this forever for us. But you see what the verse says about him? It says he had to be fully human to represent us before God. Because that was one of the qualifications of being high priest. You had to be human. That was a big part of that role. So that's why this doctrine, that's why this teaching, this idea that Jesus is God and man is so important. Because if Jesus is not fully human, then we are not and we cannot be saved. Because you see, if Jesus is not fully human, then he cannot be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. If Jesus is not fully human, then he cannot be the sacrifice in our place. If Jesus is not fully human, then his death does not atone for our sin. If Jesus is not fully human, then we cannot be saved and we are without hope. Do you see why this matters now? But you know what? Jesus is fully human and he is fully God and he has done these things. And if we will repent of our sin, if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we can, we will be saved. No, my friends, these are not just dry, dead words for the ivory tower. These are the words of life. Take and read, take and believe. Trust in Jesus that you may be saved. See him in the grandeur of his divinity. See him in the fullness of of his humanity and believe that you may have life. This is what Jesus has done to bring us to glory. He became human. But that is not all. Because what's our second point? To bring us to glory, he propitiated our sins. Now, I just said a whole lot of words in a short amount of time there. So you might have missed one point, which was that I said, if Jesus isn't human, not only can he not be our high priest, he also can't be our representative sacrifice. Now, where did I get that idea? 
I don't want to just make things up here, but look back at verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And then what does it say? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you weren't here last week, Stephen touched on this idea, but I want to spend some more time on it today because that is one of the most important words in all of Scripture. Now, I know all the Bible's words are important, every one of them, but if you had to rank them, you would do well to put this at the top or very, very close to it. So what does it mean? He gave us a good definition last week. I want to say it again today. Propitiation is the appeasement and removal of God's wrath against sin through the appropriate sacrifice. Let me say it one more time. Propitiation is the appeasement and removal of God's, sin, uh, God's wrath against sin by the appropriate sacrifice. That's a good definition. But again, I don't just want to tell you about Niagara Falls. I want to pull you under it with me. So to do that, I want to look at two questions on this point. One, what does it mean that Jesus propitiated our sins? Because I suspect, like me, that is not a word you use in your day-to-day conversation. Maybe it is. If so, wonderful. But probably not. Um, because it, it really is the most shocking claim about what Jesus has done. Because not only was he our high priest, he was the sacrifice that was offered to God. So to fully get the concept, a couple of things. You need to know that the word from which we get propitiation also translates to expiate. They're related. I think it's right here. You may not get the words, but I promise you're going to get the idea. Because I had a dear pastor explain it to me this way once. I want you to imagine that, God forbid, my family and I are driving home from church today. We get in a wreck and either Brittany or I are killed. It's going to work better in this example if she's the one that's killed. Sorry, babe. Um, But it it just will. Hang with me. It's for a good reason. Um, If that happens, at some point, lawyers, insurance people, they're all going to get involved. It's going to be terrible. But they will, they they have tables and all these things to figure out what what somebody's life is worth. And they'll factor in all these things. And I ran the numbers. I'm worth like $5. The computer's still working on Brittany's numbers. It's in like the billions. So we're going to use her because she's worth way more here. But so imagine this happens. They figured out, and eventually they hand me a check. In theory, I've been expiated because I've been given what I'm owed for what was lost. But I have not been propitiated because now imagine that the person that killed her comes to me and says, hey, we're good, right? We're cool, everything okay? No, no, we're very much not cool. You killed my wife. This is a big, big problem. And that's why it is so important that we know that Jesus propitiated our sins. Because you see, he didn't just pay what we owed for our sin. He, he expiated. He did that. He paid what, our, what we owed for our sin. But he also propitiated them, which means he turns God's disposition towards us from one of righteous wrath to one of absolute peace. So hopefully you start to see why this is a big deal, because that brings us to our second question. Why do our sins need to be propitiated? Because you see, apart from Jesus, you are not neutral towards God. And that's how the world really likes to think of itself a lot. It was like I think, you know, we're not, I love this example another pastor gave to me, we're not evil. We think, you know, we're not Hitler. We didn't kill millions and millions of people. We're not little Debbie. We didn't bring sweet goodness into the world. You know, we're right there kind of in the middle, just right down the middle of the neutral. N- nobody's in that position. Because what does the Bible say about us? It says we are actively God's enemy. It says we are rebels in open rebellion, shaking our fists defiantly, saying, I will not bow. And it says because of that, we are under 
we are subject to the wrath of God. Now, I think you could probably grasp that's a problem for us. So enter Jesus. Why did he need to propitiate our sins? Well, we'll think about it because we probably don't use that word, but what, what, what word do we use? What phrase do we use all the time? We say things like, I want to be saved. Or we say to someone, we want Jesus to save you. Or we, we pray for the salvation of others. Why, have you ever stopped and thought about why is that the phrase we use? Why do we use saved, salvation, that kind of language? Well, it's because we need to be saved from something. What is that? Well, the Bible tells us we need to be saved from our sin. Yes. But 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says we need to be saved from the wrath of God. It says Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And for the last eh, 200-ish years, there have been growing numbers of people who would claim to be Christians who've become very uncomfortable with this idea that God is a God of wrath, that we need to be delivered from God's wrath. In fact, there was a theologian back in the early 20th century. His name was Richard Niebuhr. And he uh, wrote a book in 1937 called The Kingdom of God in America. And he described that teaching this way. He said, it's, it's a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. And, and that may sound kind of comforting on the surface, but it's a lie straight out of the pit of hell because it doesn't grapple with reality in which we find ourselves. Because you know what? There is a God who is wrathful towards sinners. There is a God who is going to judge the world, but there is a God who will bring his people into glory through the work of Christ on the cross. So you see, my friends, to bring us to glory, Jesus not only became man, he propitiated our sins on the cross, meaning not only did he pay our penalty, he made us not God's enemies, but God's friends. He made us not rebels in open defiance, but God's sons and God's daughters. He made us not people under the wrath of God, but people whom God embraces with an eternal, unalterable, unshakable, death-defying love. Now that is quite a change in station, isn't it? That is what Jesus did for us. So it is a big deal that he propitiated our sins. Maybe you think, that's great. I, I trust Jesus for my salvation, but, but Austin, has he done anything to help me today? Because you know what? Life is still really, really hard. And it hurts. Yes, yes, he has, because the truth of who Jesus is is both strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow in the words of the old hymn. So what has Jesus done to help us now? That brings us to our third point. To bring us to glory, Jesus suffered temptation. Look at verse 18 with me. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the last thing this passage tells us that Jesus did to bring us to glory is to suffer temptation. And I think there are two great lies Satan will still try to tell you, even maybe especially once you have become a Christian. See if this resonates with you this morning. One, when you are battling sin and temptation, maybe that sin that you feel like you've been fighting your whole life. Maybe it's that grudge that you just can't stop nursing. Maybe it's the battle with lust and pornography. Maybe it's the, the envy or the anger that you feel every time you log into social media. 
Maybe it's doubting God's goodness when life gets hard. Whatever your temptation may be, Satan leans in, he whispers, and he says, you are uniquely sinful. Nobody else is, is as bad as you. Don't, don't tell anybody because they'll think badly of you. You are alone, and you will never be rid of this. That's where you are this morning. God's word says that is not true. I think the other great lie is this. When you are deep in the depths of life's pain, of life's hurts, you're overwhelmed. When, when the job is lost, when the cancer has come back, when the friendship is broken, when another miscarriage has occurred, what does Satan try to say? He says, you're not loved. No one could understand your pain. God does not care for your sufferings. You are alone. Friend, if that's where you find yourself today, take heart, because it is not true. Because what does it tell us Jesus did? He suffered temptation, and he's able to help those who are being tempted. And elsewhere, the word tells us to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That's a simple thing. But the God of the universe says, I care about you. And he's just spent the last nine verses proving it through what he has done for us. Maybe you say, I get that. I really do. But maybe your struggle comes with the next step and you think, but I know he cares, but could Jesus really get it? I mean, he was perfect. He never sinned. How could he possibly know what it's like to go through this? And I, I tried so hard to figure out where I got this illustration. I think it's John Piper. I don't know for sure. So somebody deserves the credit, not me. We'll give it to him. That's fine. But imagine giant pit in the ground, people all around it with a rope around their waist and it's pulling them in. And the moment you stop resisting, you just end and you die. So people around, you've got one guy, you know, like five minutes, he just gives up, you know, tally-ho, off into the pit he goes. Another guy, five weeks, he, he, he fights and he fights and he fights and off. Another guy, five months. But somebody, one person, holds out their whole life and never, ever, ever stops resisting. Now, who of those people understands the most what it's like to resist? The one who held out to the end. Jesus understands because he fought temptation. He fought sin. He fought pain till the very, very end, and he never gave up. He endured every form of hurt imaginable. So yes, you can and you should trust Jesus with your temptations, with your sufferings, with your struggles, with your hurts, with your pains, with your sorrows, your disappointments, all of it, because he is good. He is faithful. He is God, and he is human, and he has literally been there. He is still here. I love how Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, put this in a sermon he preached in 1866. It was called A Happy Christian. Listen to what he says. He says, the worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. 
He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour, and believes that all is well. Do you believe that all is well this morning? I don't, I don't know why you're here. I don't know what's brought you to this day. I imagine for some of you, it's been a pretty rough road. And you're looking for the light at the end of the tunnel and you can't see it. And your cry is, God, where are you? But I know this. If you're placing your trust, if you're placing your hope in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ this morning, you are leaning on a broken staff. And it will eventually give way. It will eventually fail you. But this morning, if your heart aches for something better, if you've got a soul-deep homesickness longing for something more, if you are seeking a glory that you have discovered nothing in this world can provide, then my friend, look to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sin and believe in him. Cast your cares your anxieties, your burdens on him. He loves his people so much that he gave up his glory to become a human. He hung on that cross and he bore every last ounce of the Father's wrath that was meant for us in our stead. And he suffered every temptation you've ever known. He suffered every hurt you've ever felt. He hurts with you today, now, this hour, all to bring his people home, all to bring us to glory. He is good. He is God. And he is enough. And one way we remember this every week here at Redeemer is to take the Lord's Supper together. And if you're new with us, or if this isn't unfamiliar to you, but you're a Christian, and you're a part of a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church, we invite you to join us in this family meal. If you're not, we are so glad you're here. Thank you for being here. We would ask that you let the cup and the bread pass, not to exclude you, but because this is a celebration of what Jesus has done for us. And I would invite you this morning, as, as the cup and the bread are coming, spend some time asking God to search your heart, to find the sin that is found there and to destroy it. Spend some time coming before the Lord with your hurts and asking him to care for you because he asks you to do that. So let's do that as we prepare to participate in this act of worship.